this morning is found in the book we're going through. It's the last book of the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi. Please turn to that book. In Hebrew, it's Malachi. And we are in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Listen to the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. And then a reading from the New Testament in Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 28, reading through verse 32. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. May God bless our understanding, the reading of this is holy word. Amen. The book of Malachi doesn't get a lot of play in our lives. Uh, It's not a book my guess is most of us have turned to or read uh, much, if at all. You know, there are rooms in the Bible that we rarely open the door to and look inside what's there. And there are a lot of hallways in the Scriptures that we rarely go down. But in those books, in those rooms, in those hallways, uh, God's voice speaks just as clearly and just as much as in the books we read more, maybe the Gospels or or the Psalms or, or the letters of Paul. We need the whole counsel of God. Not just a few books, but the whole counsel of God. All 66 books are there for us. 
And so that's why I chose and wanted to preach through Malachi this summer, to give us a little exposure to and look into a place we might not go on our own. Malachi is kind of a question and answer session between God and his people. Um, Israel's quite accusatory toward God in this letter. They want to know if God loves them. They want to know how he is actually faithful to them. In essence, they put God on trial. They flood the Lord's altar with tears, we read, and, and because they aren't getting what they want from God. And they ask God, why? Why don't you do what we want when we want it? We don't understand. You know, sometimes we have things that we think should be happening or that God should be doing for us. God has no problem with our questions. It's okay to answer, to ask Him, well, why isn't this happening, God? But I tell you, make sure you're on steady ground when you start to put God on trial because God has His reasons. And they are impeccable almost 100% of the time. As a matter of fact, they are infallible 100% of the time. So brace yourself if you want a real answer from the Lord. The Lord, through the prophet Malachi, does a good job giving his defense. And one of the primary problems the Lord has with Israel, and the reason he's been unresponsive, he says, is because of their faithlessness. Their faithlessness. Perhaps one of the worst experiences we can have in our lives is to be let down by somebody. Um, when valuable promises and commitments have been broken and when people have been faithless towards us. How many counselors, how many therapists, how many psychiatrists are doing a steady business because of the many key and vital relationships that have been violated because a commitment, an important commitment has been broken. A husband cheats on his wife. A parent forsakes their children. A woman who has given her life faithfully and steadily to uh, a company for many, many years is coldly and impersonally laid off. Someone who's trusted his or her church has been burnt by the leadership of that church or by someone in that church and devastatingly let down. When faith is broken, it hurts. And breaking faith is the key word in these words from Malachi. It appears, if you were counting, it appears five different times in the New International Version translation. Breaking faith. Five different times it is there. Some Bibles translate the word faithless. It's the same word. And, and it, this word has a sense of being double-crossed. Uh, it has the sense of being underhanded. This breaking faith is intentional. It's done very consciously. And God tells Israel... Don't talk to me about not getting what you want when you live so selfishly and so shift, shifty and, and you're disloyal and you break faith in so many ways. And God's people have broken faith in three ways that he points out. The first way is just between amongst themselves. The second way he points out is in their marriage covenants. And the third way is to him, to the Lord. They all have one God and Father, and they, in essence, belong to the same family, yet they break faith with one another. They're disloyal to one another. One of the things Jesus prayed for is the unity of his church. 
And we also read in the New Testament that we are the body of Christ. We are members of one another. We belong to one another. And that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So when we stop out of a church or when we cut off relationships in anger or hostility or we remain unforgiving, we dishonor the Lord's desire for His people. We may not always agree. Unity does not mean unanimity but we're bound together by God our Father and by the faith that we share with one another. We're brothers and sisters. But the elephant in the text, I know. The elephant in the text, and I'm sure that ears went up when they heard this, is when the Lord said, I hate divorce. Because perhaps you've been divorced. Or maybe your parents are divorced. Or maybe your children or divorced. And we hear these words and they just kind of bite. The Lord says, I hate divorce. And we tense up. What's coming? Well, be clear what the Lord does not say. The Lord does not say, I hate people who are divorced. That's not what He says. The Lord says He hates the act of divorce. What it brings. What it does to people. The massive pain. The massive grief that results. I don't know anybody I don't know anybody who has enjoyed the experience of divorce. Whether it has been something that had to happen, and there are times, sadly, divorce needs to happen. Whether it has been even amicable, it wasn't enjoyable. When it brings relief to our lives in the long run, there's still a sense of loss, of failure that's always going to be there. Divorce hurts men, it hurts women, it hurts children, it hurts friends. Um, and sometimes, oftentimes, it will leave a wound that will never heal and certainly scars that we always remember. There's a sense of failure. There's a sense of loss that always happens in our minds. Divorce can be frightening. Divorce crushes dreams. It steals hope. And God hates divorce because He hates the fear. He hates the suffering. He hates the grief that it causes people. And because He hates it, He completely understands it. Those of you who've been through it, you know what it is and what it's been for you. We don't make promises in our marriages to have them end. That's not why we got into it. Our intention is it for not to be broken, but sometimes that happens, sadly. Sometimes you don't even have a say in the matter. Some people are victimized because the other person just walks away and says, I'm done, and there's no choice in the matter. People who have experienced divorce or are experiencing it experience that. They need our prayers. They need our love. They need our compassion. They need our support. Jesus acknowledged that the God who hates divorce made a provision for divorce. And in Mark chapter 10, the Jewish leaders bring this up to him, these Jewish religious leaders. And Jesus tells them that God, through Moses, allowed for divorce in some circumstances, but he makes it clear it was because of people's hardness of heart that he did this. Now, God isn't just giving some general, broad, big opinions about divorce in Malachi. There was something going on in the days of Malachi. There was something going on. And he is specifically addressing the situation where the men of Israel were so easily divorcing their wives and marrying women of foreign religions. And they were doing it so that they could get better property, so that they could move up in the world, so that they could maybe get a higher reputation or improve their social status. 
dump your wife when she doesn't serve your purpose anymore and just find another. That's what was going on. And men were violently, violently casting away their wives they had made promises to. And they were doing so out of pure selfishness, just pure self-satisfaction. You know, while divorce is always sad, it is saddest when it is taken just absolutely lightly. And when divorce becomes an easy convenience to just smoothing a path to worldly success, marriage loses its meaning. The growth of the ease ease with which divorce was taking place in Israel was what Malachi was addressing as he revealed the hardness of heart of the men. Recently I read something that Blake Shelton said. And I've got to be honest with you, I had to Google who Blake Shelton was. You probably know, but apparently he's an award-winning country singer. And uh, he was responding to how he handled his first, message, uh, first marriage and divorce. And this is what he said. He said, life isn't perfect. So you find what makes you happy and you do it. Blake Shelton would have done well with the men of Israel in Malachi's time. Find what makes you happy and do it. That is a lie that is embedded in 21st century American everyday life right now. Find what makes you happy and just do that. You know, marriage is a lot of a lot of things. It is not always about being happy all the time. In fact, ask people who have been faithfully, happily married for many, many years, and they will tell you, it has not always been happy. Nor has it come without cost. Nor has it come without sacrifice. In marriage, you have to do a lot of things that doesn't make you happy. We do it out of love. We do it out of faithfulness. We do it out of commitment to the other person and that covenant that we've entered. God's intention for marriage is to bind yourself to another person in a covenant and to be made one. I think marriage is a spiritual discipline. I think it's a spiritual discipline. And in marriage, I learn a lot about myself. I learn it's like a school. It's like you go to school every day. I learn about myself. I learn about love. I learn about grace. I learn about forgiveness. I learn about sacrifice. I learn about the Holy Spirit. And, and here's something that's really good to have going into marriage. It's really good to have a strong theology of human sin. That our hearts are fallen and that we're fallen people. It's also good to have a strong theology of God's grace. Um, I think a theology of suffering doesn't hurt as well. And I don't mean that to be funny, or I don't mean it in a caustic way, but um, a theology of suffering helps us understand when life isn't all roses, because sometimes marriage isn't all roses. Kathleen Norris, the, the writer who, a Christian writer, happens to be Presbyterian, um, and she's from South Dakota. I know that scores a lot of points in this church. For some reason, God sent a lot of Presbyterians from South Dakota here. But she writes this. She, she writes, the very nature of marriage means saying yes before you know what it will cost. And though you may say the I do of the wedding ritual in all sincerity, it is the testing of that vow over time that makes you married. Well, in Malachi, the Lord puts the onus on the men. And the men generally had the power over the women in that patriarchal ancient color, uh, culture. And while our times are, are different in many ways, you know what? I would still have to put the onus on the men today. 
Men, we need to love and we need to nurture our wives. There's a certain, a certain leadership and headship given to the man. And we can debate all that all day long, debate what, what that looks like. And it doesn't mean that women are subservient. It does not mean that women are anything less than equal. But God has given the men a special place in that relationship. And with that leadership comes accountability and comes responsibility. And I think, I think it falls more on the shoulders of the men. Not totally, but a good part of it. Most of the marriage counseling I do is because the man is not doing the love and the sacrifice and the nurturing that he needs to do. Almost all of it. Almost all the counseling I do. And in my own marriage, um, times of pain, times of frustration can be attributed to something usually I'm doing or not doing, probably, I don't know, maybe as much as 80% of the time. I've lost count. Malachi was particularly speaking of divorce that had become way too easy, way too easy. But the larger reason why God brings up his hatred for divorce is to speak of this, is to speak of how his very own people had divorced him. God uses what men were doing to their wives to parallel what had happened to him. You know, God always sees, has always seen our relationship with him, the relationship between God and his people as a marriage, as if we are the wife and God is our husband. And he speaks like that several times in the scriptures. One example is here. For God, your maker, is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The relationship between the Lord and us, it's a marriage, it's a covenant. And throughout the prophets, God even goes so far as to accuse Israel of spiritual adultery. Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God is a God of covenant, which means this. Covenant is the theological word for relationship. God is a God of relationship. You see, we're, we're related to him and it's personal. It's not impersonal. It's personal. It's a relationship of love. And, it, and to, to, to keep that relationship going, it takes the same things that any other committed relationship takes. It takes love. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. It takes faithfulness. It doesn't come, our relationship with the Lord doesn't come primarily with being in relationship to a church or to a set of principles. A church... A set of principles helps feed that relationship. But this relationship is personal. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God comes by way of faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And the sign of our covenant relationship is baptism. When we are baptized, it's not a celebration of, oh, look at me and what I've done. Oh, look at, look at, look at how much I love God. No. Baptism is about how much God has done for us, reaching down to us in love, claiming us, redeeming us. And baptism is our acceptance of the covenant and entering that and saying we accept the Lord's gracious invitation to be in relationship with him. We commit ourselves to him for the rest of our lives by making promises. And in that way, baptism and marriage are very much alike. We also, in marriage, make promises to the other person, don't we? The Apostle Paul goes so far as to compare the marriage of a man and a woman to this relationship between the Lord and his people, between Christ and his church. 
And just as wives and husbands must submit and love and respect and care for and nurture one another, so Christ does that for His church. We are His body. We are His people. Paul writes, husbands ought to love their wives just as they love their own bodies by caring, for feeding, by feeding them because Christ does this for us. And he quotes probably the, the, the most major verse of marriage in the Bible. It comes from Genesis. For a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Flesh. Many people read Ephesians 5 and they say, well, that's a passage about human marriage. And it is. I use it with couples all the time as I'm preparing them for their marriage. But in talking about marriage, Paul makes an admission. And he says this at the end of that passage. He admits this is a profound mystery. Paul admits this is hard to get. But he says, I'm talking about not so much men and women. I'm talking about Christ and his church. Marriage is how a man and woman become one flesh and And it's a mystery. But what Paul is really trying to illustrate is the relationship of Jesus Christ to his people. It's a marriage. You're married whether you like it or not, if you're involved with him. And in Malachi, the Lord calls out Israel and Judah, saying those who have so quickly abandoned their covenants of marriage for personal gain, they might just do the same thing with me and abandon their covenant with God. And both are acts of unfaithfulness. God is saying, if you can so easily break faith with your wife, you could just as easily do it to me. In fact, you have. I'm afraid sometimes that in my sin and my rebellion, I've left God. I've cheated on Him. I've ignored Him. I've compromised His love. I've broken faith many times in many different ways. Remember that time when someone broke faith with you? If it didn't feel good when someone didn't honor their covenant with you, well, it grieves the Lord when we don't honor our covenant with Him. But this is the remarkable thing about God. He's always faithful. In fact, there's a scripture that says, even if we are faithless, He is faithful. Listen to what Moses said to Israel in the early days at kind of the wedding ceremony of this covenant between God and His people. He says, the Lord didn't choose you. He didn't set His affection on you because you were the largest number of people or because you were the best looking or the most gifted or the brightest bulb in the ancient world. He said, no, He set His affection on you because He wanted to. And He brought you out of slavery and out of that that, that oppression under Pharaoh and Egypt. And then He says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations to those who love Him and keep His commandments. God is the faithful God. And faithfulness is not just an attribute. It is His very being. It is who He is. It's part of His nature and character. And you may decide to let Him down. You may quit on Him. You may walk away from Him. You may care less. But God will never let go of you. He'll never stop pursuing us in His love, never stop remaining faithful, never giving up on us and the relationship that He's decided to have with us. Listen to some other verses that testify to God's faithfulness. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. The one who calls you is faithful and He will do it. Our very forgiveness is based on God's faithfulness. 
It says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Boy, aren't you glad He's like that? And then there's a scene in Revelation where it's, it's Christ who's, who's riding a, a white horse. And, and John sees this. He says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Faithful is His very name. So faithful is God that even when God's people were absolutely faithless in their covenant He made with them, He didn't give up on us. But in Jesus Christ, He made a new covenant. And He spoke about that day when the covenant would come. And He said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them from the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And God made up for our unfaithfulness on the cross and made a new relationship possible through the forgiveness of our sins. It's an enduring relationship. We can go to the Father anytime and ask His forgiveness and renew that relationship, renew that covenant. And it is really, really rare when a spouse tries to lure back an unfaithful partner. Maybe once, but again and again and again and again, He will not give up on us. What love Christ has shown us. What grace He's shown us. What reason to be faithful to Him, I think. How faithful He is to us. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You that that is in Your very nature and character, Lord. Because we can be so fallible so weak, so fickle. And we thank you most of all for coming in Jesus and allowing us to have this relationship with you. Never let us take that relationship for granted. Keep us faithful to the covenant you make with us. Amen.